Take a Bible, if you will, and turn uh, early on in the Bible in the Old Testament to second, the book of 2 Kings, chapter 5. If you're using a Bible out of one of the pews, it's page five, uh, 311, 311, 2 Kings, chapter 5. This is an account of a, a general, commander of the army for the Syrians. Now, we hear about Syria every day in our news, in our world news. And Syria then was in about the same location Syria is now. But with the land of Israel at this time, this is about the 9th century B.C., around 800 B.C., uh, Israel's border to the northeast was with Syria. And you have to keep that in mind as we read this because in the King James Version, it doesn't call it Syria. It calls it Aram, A-R-A-N. And there were these border skirmishes where the Syrians would go into Israel and they would attack and enslave people and then vice versa. So they were, they were small-time enemies regionally, not, not big-time in that sense. Beginning of verse 1, hear God's word, 2 Kings chapter 5. Naaman, commander of the army of the king of Syria, was a great man with his master and in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. He was a mighty man of valor, but he was a leper. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. She said to her mistress, would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria. He would cure him of his leprosy. So Naaman went in and told his Lord, Thus and so spoke the girl from the land of Israel. And the king of Syria said, Go now, and I will send a letter to the king of Israel. So he went, taking with him ten talents of silver, six thousand shekels of gold, and ten changes of clothing. And he brought the letter to the king of Israel, which read, when this letter reaches you, know that I have sent to you Naaman, my servant, that you may cure him of his leprosy. And when the king of Israel read the letter, he tore his clothes and said, Am I God to kill and to make alive that this man sends word to me to cure a man of his leprosy? Only consider and see how he is seeking a quarrel with me. But when Elisha, the man of God, heard that the king of Israel had torn his clothes, he sent to the king, saying, Why have you torn your clothes? Let him come down now to me, that he may know that there is a prophet in Israel. So Naaman came with his horses and chariots and stood at the door of Elisha's house. And Elisha sent a messenger to him, saying, Go and wash in the Jordan seven times, and your flesh shall be restored, and you shall be clean." But Naaman was angry and went away, saying, Behold, I thought that he would surely come out to me and stand and call upon the name of the Lord his God and wave his hand over the place and cure the leper. Are not Abana and Farpar, the rivers of Damascus, better than all the waters of Israel? Could I not wash in them and be clean? So he turned and went away in a rage. But his servants came near and said to him, My father... It is a great word the prophet has spoken to you. Will you not do it? Has he actually said to you, wash and be clean? So he went down and dipped himself seven times in the Jordan, according to the word of the man of God, and his flesh was restored like the flesh of a little child, and he was clean. That ends the reading of, of God's 
holy and inerrant and inspired word. If you read the news, uh, if you read it this morning or late last night, you saw that Charles Colson has died. He died yesterday. He was 80 years old. I read a variety of reports uh, of his death and summarizing his life. Some referred to him as the tough-as-nails special counsel to President Richard Nixon, who went to his role in a Watergate-related case. Um, Charles Colson wrote and sold more, he sold more than 25 million books. Uh, his radio show called Breakpoint uh, was on more than 1,200 radio stations. Uh, he headed up Prison Fellowship, that has done an enormous amount of good over the past 35 years. All the award money that he won, all the speaking fees, all the royalties went to the Ministry of Prison Fellowship. I know a number of you, those of us that are older, have been greatly influenced perhaps by Charles Colson. On a personal note, I would say that his books probably shape my understanding of how Christianity relates to the world more than any other Christian author. In my 20s, I read, uh, began to read his books. Uh, I read Kingdoms in Conflict. I read his book on the church called The Body. Uh, just a few years ago, a number of us here studied his book called The Good Life, which is a Christian world and life view. But the book that probably has uh, had more of an impact on me, maybe than almost any other book I've ever read, was a book I read back in my 20s that he wrote called Loving God. Uh, in the early pages of Loving God, he gives an account of something that happened to him or really happened in his thinking on a beautiful Easter morning at the Delaware State Prison. He was not a prisoner. He was there at the request of the governor of the state of Delaware to speak that morning to many of the inmates at this Easter service at the prison. And he wrote, As I sat on the platform waiting my turn at the pulpit, my mind began to drift back in time to scholarships and honors earned cases argued and won, great decisions made from lofty government offices. My life had been the perfect success story, the great American dream fulfilled. But all at once I realized that it was not my success that God had used to enable time to help those in prison or in the hundreds of others. My life of success was not what made this morning so glorious. All my achievements meant nothing in God's economy. No, the real legacy of my life was my biggest failure, that I was an ex-convict. My greatest humiliation, being sent to prison, was the beginning of God's greatest use of my life. He chose the one experience in which I could not glory for His glory. You know, we naturally think the other way. We tend to think that God can use me if I achieve things by the work of my hands, if I accomplish things, then God has to recognize those and he will use me. And we meet just such a man here in 2 Kings 5 with Naaman. He was a successful man. As I mentioned, it's about 800 B.C., the land of Syria on the northeastern border of Israel. Uh, they had had conflict between them. And so in verse 1, we meet this man named Naaman. He's the commander of the armies. He's not the king of Syria. He serves under the king of Syria. But he's highly decorated, and he's honored. But then at the end of verse 1, it's like a thud comes. It gives all these credentials, and then it said, but he had leprosy. 
Notice how the author piles up the accolades, and then he drops that one description. Leprosy in the Bible encompassed a wide variety of skin diseases. Uh, Many times they were fatal. Not always, but they would cripple, they would disfigure, often kill their victims. And so if this was typical, then Naaman's body over time would puff up, his skin and bones would crack, and then they would fall, skin, large portions of skin, and even fingers and so forth would fall off in stages. Now, the most shocking part of verse 1, I don't think, is the description of the, that he has leprosy. I think it's something else. I hope you have your Bible open. It's where it says he was a great man with his master in high favor because by him the Lord had given victory to Syria. Victory to Syria. That's the most shocking note here. Do you know what we mean by the term the sovereignty of God? If that term is not too familiar to you, the sovereignty of God, when it's used in church and in theological books, it basically refers to the notion that God controls all things everywhere all the time. Sovereign being king, God is king, king over his kingdom, all of his creation, and he controls everything. We refer to that as the sovereignty of God. Well, here is God's sovereignty in the big events, national events. When it says that, that the Lord had given victory to Syria, it's not crediting Naaman's military prowess or how many soldiers and how much armor they had. It's saying that God had given victory to Syria. But what's strange about this? What's strange is that Syria was the enemy of God's chosen people. Israel. And so the text implies that God is controlling Syrian politics and military affairs. So he's not just concerned about what happened among his people in Israel. He's not exclusively concerned about his covenant people. This is the God of Psalm 24.1. Psalm 24.1 says, The earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof, the world and those who dwell therein. So God is both the God of the church and he's the God of the world. He draws near to his people, but that does not mean, as one writer said, that he allows unbelievers to run around unsupervised. God's sovereignty does not stop at the border of the United States and at the Atlantic Ocean. Many of you have traveled and you've not gotten off a plane somewhere where there was no sign of God's sovereignty. It is everywhere, with all people in all places. Now verse 2 is the other side of the coin. Verse 1 is the large part of God's sovereignty. He's sovereign over big events, but now it zeroes in, the camera zooms in, and it says this. Now the Syrians on one of their raids had carried off a little girl from the land of Israel, and she worked in the service of Naaman's wife. So it moves from the big events, Syria, military defeat, over Israel, little servant girl, who the whole story hinges on this little girl, and we're not even told her name. For me, reading Bible scholars, she could have been anywhere from 8 to 14 years old. So just still, a little girl. It's almost matter-of-factly stated. It just says there was a servant girl she'd been carried off in one of the military raids. Now think about that for a moment because it's a heartbreaking description. Is it cold in here? It's freezing. I'm cold. Okay, that's all right. I can't do anything about it. Just thought I'd notice it. Okay, now do the best you can. Here's what's heartbreaking. But it's drawing a contrast. Naming the great man, verse 1, little servant girl, not even named, verse 2. But what had happened? 
What had happened? She'd been captured in one of those raids. Now, at the best, at the best, when we think about what happened to her family, that meant at the best that they might have been, her mother and father, assuming they were alive, assuming her brothers and sisters, that they'd been carried off into slavery. But at worst, it meant they were killed, maybe before her very eyes. And so when that soldier grabbed her that day and tossed her either on a horse or into the back of a wagon or whatever, her life was over as far as she knew it. She had dreams. Maybe her dreams weren't grandiose, but probably just live there in that village where she was for the rest of her life, perhaps to have a, a marriage and a family and so forth. All that was gone. She was never going home. She would never go back. No one would open up a power bill in Israel and say, have you seen this little girl? Missing since and such and such a date. Her life was over. So if anyone, if anyone had reason to be hostile toward Naaman, it would have been this little girl. So everything hinges on her. But we see that what is still intact is her faith in God. We see that because she's very familiar with the prophet Elisha. Whether she'd seen him or not, heard him or not, heard about him from her parents or grandparents or whoever, we don't know, but she's a godly girl. Now I want to make one other note. Who was likely responsible for what had happened to this girl and her family? Name. If he's the military commander and he's ultimately in charge, maybe he wasn't on that skirmish that day or on that raid, but he was ultimately responsible. And so she could have blamed her, him, for her troubles. She could have indulged in fantasies of revenge. Think about that. What she knew could save him, and by withholding it, she could make him suffer with his leprosy. She could make him bear the cost of what he had done to her and others. He had abused her. Now she could abuse him. However, she does not do that. She could have thought to herself as she watched his leprosy, leprosy, <laughs> layman. Naaman, I hope you die a slow, degrading death, and when it happens, I will dance on your grave. But that's not what she does. That was not her attitude. Look at her words to her master's wife in verse 3. She says, Would that my Lord were with the prophet who is in Samaria, he would cure him of his leprosy. There's sympathy, there's genuine concern, apparently, in these words as she spoke to Naaman's wife, her, her mistress. Apparently, she was from a godly home. She was from a remnant family. She knew about Elisha. Now, in God's sovereignty, the big picture in verse 1, the little picture in verse 2, everything hangs on this little girl in her tragic servitude. Without her, Naaman would never be healed. I want to make a couple of observations before looking at what happens next. And that is, although it's God who changes hearts, it's the Holy Spirit who changes hearts. People are often brought into the kingdom at great cost to other people. And it may be the time that's spent praying for others. It may be the relationships that are built with the part of others or that believing friend who spent time and answered your questions and loved you into the kingdom. It could be all of those things. Secondly, sometimes the means that God uses to bring people to himself seem so incidental and so small. Sending a card, calling a discouraged friend, inviting someone to church. Are we okay? All right. Okay, we need to do something? What do you need? You need a doctor? Y'all just sit tight for a moment. 